The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Matthew Arthur, I am your host, and on this episode I am presenting sermons by Bishop Donald Sanborn. We are pleased to present In Veritate, free of charge to our listeners by the gracious sponsorship of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. And now, on the subjects of Christian modesty and succession, we present In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today, the sermon will take the form of reading to you a pastoral letter on Christian modesty, which I think is necessary uh, at this time, just given some uh, observances that I've made over the past few months. First, the general principles of Christian modesty. God's purpose in placing sexual attraction in human beings is for the procreation and education of children in holy matrimony. There is no other purpose for this attraction. The proof is that young children who are incapable of generation are not attracted to each other. In fact, boys and girls tend to shun each other until such time as they are capable of generation of children. Another proof is the fact that attractiveness is greater as the perfection of nature is greater and is lesser as the perfection of nature is lesser. So, for example, when people grow a little older and a little fatter, they become less attractive and they are more attractive when they are young and thin. Why is this? Because the perfection of nature is ordered to generation of children. A perfect nature is going to produce a healthy child. And so the more perfect the nature is, the better it is for generation. So all of it is ordered toward the generation of children. Therefore, any deliberate enjoyment of sexual pleasure outside of holy matrimony is a mortal sin. This is true because it is intrinsically disordered to seek or enjoy the pleasure which is attached to an act without intending the end which God intends for it. For this reason, for example, To eat for pure pleasure would be a sin. It is the very definition of gluttony. 
Food is for our nourishment, but when we eat too much simply for the pleasure, we commit a sin of gluttony because we are using the pleasure without the end which God intends. Now, gluttony admits of venial sin. Sexual sins do not admit of venial sin because of the gravity of the matter which is always present. Marriage and sexuality are made for the procreation of children. That is, it is a cooperation with God in the making of a human person. There is no possible light matter with regard to this most serious end. Hence, the purpose of Christian modesty is to clothe oneself in such a way as to minimize, indeed remove altogether, any temptation toward impurity in the opposite sex. The purpose of clothing, therefore, is to cover. It is not to reveal. The passions of sexual attraction are the most vehement in us, and every precaution must be taken in order to remove the occasions of sin. Now, what are the practical applications of these principles? First, I must speak about the modern world. <clears throat> Before 1918, that is, up to the end of World War I, it was unheard of in the history of the human race that women would wear skirts above their ankles. Unheard of. The only people that did so were the ladies of the street. In fact, that is how they were recognized. After the war, however, the 20th century sexual revolution began, as did the spread of socialism and the cinema. Hollywood, completely under the control of non-Christians, produced films which were positively salacious. The Ben-Hur, for example, that was made in the 1920s is something that cannot even be watched by anybody. It is so dirty. Those silent films, in many cases, were filthy dirty. And they contributed to this revolution that was taking place. So at the same time, women's dress changed radically. Look at pictures of women in 1910. If you go to Google Images, women in 1910 and then women in 1925. And you will see that their dress changed radically. The necklines came down, the skirts were up to the knee. Bare backs were shown. Nearly all women, especially the young, wanted to imitate the Hollywood glamour. This revolution continued throughout the 1930s and the 1940s, despite the fact that it was significantly curtailed by the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in the realm of films. 
through the Legion of Decency, the Catholic Church in this country particularly, managed to bring, to, to elevate the morality of films. That all disappeared with Vatican II. <clears throat> with the close of World War II, the sexual revolution exploded again, now worse than ever. In the 1950s, the impure Hollywood stars reappear wearing heavily suggestive clothing. The 1960s was a time in which the pits of hell were opened with regard to modesty, not only in films, but in common forms of dress and behavior. Television began to decay little by little until by 1975 or 1980, it was no longer possible for Catholics to look at broadcast television. Films became increasingly dirty. People's moral habits also declined immensely. It is this modern world that has produced for us the standards of dress in these times. The tight skirt, the mini skirt, women in tight pants, tank tops, see-through clothing, plunging necklines, bare backs, short shorts. All you have to do is go out on the street and you'll see all of it. Now, what is the Catholic response to this modern world? Catholics do not take their morality from a sensuous and filthy world that knows not God, but from the Catholic Church, which teaches in the name of God. If Catholics listen to the world regarding sexual morality, they will go to hell. Hence, the Catholic must listen to the church regarding sexual morality, including Christian modesty. Concerning these things, the church will give you nothing else than God's natural law and what flows from his natural law through common sense. Because Catholic morality and modesty are so opposed to the standards of the world, it is very difficult, especially for young persons, to pull away from these lax and lascivious standards. Original sin and its effects incline us toward evil. Its path is smooth, wide, and downhill. The path of Christian modesty, on the other hand, is narrow, steep, rough, and full of thorn bushes. It is narrow because few people use it. It is steep since it is an uphill battle against our lower inclinations. It is rough because of the many hardships there are in even finding clothing which conforms to Christian modesty. And it is full of thorn bushes because we are constantly stung by the criticism of the world if we observe Christian modesty. Nevertheless, we must take this road 
and persevere on it. Now, some rules for women's clothing in general. It is forbidden to wear skirts which rise above the knee. The covering of the knee is a minimum for Christian modesty. The skirt must cover the knee not only when one is standing, but also when one is sitting. So if the skirt is tight, it is going to run up and show the knees when you're sitting. That is unacceptable. That is immodest. Second, it is forbidden to wear skirts or tops which are excessively tight. A skirt or top should not show any contours of the body. Remember, clothing is to hide, not to reveal. To the contrary, Christian modesty wants to cover up these things. And it also wants to permit ease of walking. When I see how tight some women's skirts are, I think, how does that woman walk in that? Skirts should be loose-fitting and flowing. The only purpose of a tight skirt is to show off the contours of the body. It has no practical purpose whatsoever. <clears throat> and the purpose of a short skirt is again to be dirty. When you see these women in the, the depths of winter in the northern climates and the wind is blowing, you wonder why does that person have that short skirt on? She must be freezing. There is no practical reason for it. Indeed, practicality demands against it. Thirdly, it is forbidden to wear clothing which is too low in the front or back. The traditional rule for Catholic modesty is that the neckline should not be more than one inch from the bottom of the neck, both in the front and in the back. I don't have to tell you how the necklines are plunging today. Indeed, they're so far down that one wonders why they even bother to put on a top at all and why they don't run around like natives in just their grass skirts. We live in a world that is addicted to impurity. Now, there are certain rules for church in addition to these general rules. No sleeveless dresses or blouses in church. Indeed, a sleeveless dress is an immodest dress. It's not seriously immodest usually, but it's immodest for, in all cases. But in church, it's forbidden. The sleeve must, be, must descend to at least one halfway down the bicep. Three-quarter length or full-length sleeves are much preferred. Uh, no completely open-toed shoes, such as sandals or flip-flops, and this goes for men and women, which are very common today. And these are not immodest, but they are too casual for church. But a slight opening in the front of the shoe is permitted. 
And then there, are, there can be no spiky high-heeled shoes. It is perfectly acceptable that women wear moderately high-heeled shoes, perhaps two or three inches. Very high-heeled shoes, however, pass into the world of immodesty since they accentuate the legs too much. And that's the reason why they're worn. If you examine the very spiky high-heeled shoe, it has no sense whatsoever as regards an instrument for walking. It is a perfectly absurd thing. It's bad for your back. It's difficult to walk in them. They get caught on escalators and other things. They're totally impractical. But they are made for one thing, and that is to show off legs. And they are immodest. They should never be worn by any woman. And there is absolutely no place in church for such shoes. A man owing to the dress of a woman, the immodest dress of a woman, should never be distracted by any parts of the body of the opposite sex. Not ever, but especially not in church. His head should not turn when a woman walks into church. And your guilt in attracting men in church is double because it is the house of God. Such high-heeled shoes could be a source of temptation for a man and could easily lead him into other sins of impure looks and impure thoughts. Now we pass on to the beach and water sports. The modern world has turned the beach into a place of sin. Again, if you look on Google Images and you put in beaches of 1900, you will see that people wore swimsuits that were relatively modest. You will also see that men and women are very seldom seen together, bathing together in these pictures. Women are with women, men are with men. When the sexual revolution came, the beach became a place in which it was customary to remove practically all of your clothing in front of the opposite sex. And this is gravely immoral. The present custom of the beach is that men wear what is the equivalent of their underpants, and women wear the equivalent of their underclothing. And they do this in front of each other with the blessing of the modern culture. They don't do it with the blessing of the Catholic Church. You would never think of doing that in the privacy of your own home. But yet, for some reason, the beach is this place in which people can go practically naked in front of each other and think nothing of it. Catholics do this, traditional Catholics, accepting the dictates of the modern culture as if there were nothing wrong with it. 
And they sin by doing so. And they sin mortally. Now, what are the rules for uh, bathing and water sports and recreations? Mixed bathing, that is, where men and women participate, is permitted only among members of the immediate family. Immediate family is defined as father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, and siblings. Cousins, even first cousins, are not included in that. Water sports and recreations may take place in mixed company, provided that everyone is modestly dressed and that there is no physical contact between men and women, unless, again, they be of immediate family. It is a serious occasion of sin to be on a beach in which members of the opposite sex can be seen who are dressed in a seriously immodest manner. So to go and visit the beach and see people who are dressed essentially in their underwear, uh, members of the opposite sex, that's a serious occasion of sin. It is worse than a dirty movie. Contact sports. Men and women cannot play contact sports together. It is an occasion of sin. The following are contact sports. Football, soccer, basketball. The following are not contact sports. Volleyball, canoeing, tennis, baseball, and all of its various forms, such as softball, etc. Then there are movies and television. Nearly all movies being made today are unacceptable for Catholics for the following reasons. First, grave immodesty. Second, sexually explicit scenes. Third, bad language, particularly impure language and blasphemy. Four, the relishing of violence. Violence in itself is not wrong to see, but it is wrong to make such play of the violence or to show so much shedding of blood and torture, etc., that there is a certain relish in seeing it. That's bad. Five, improper roles for men, women, or children where women are seen as the head of the house and the man as a mouse, or children who are, are disrespectful to their parents, or women in roles such as female Rambos. This is entirely improper, and it gives a very bad in, uh, impression to children particularly. And six, placing immorality in a good or indifferent light, such as, for example, living together. In many modern movies, these things are seen to be just normal, that two people are living together. 
Now, many traditional Catholics edit movies, but the editing may take away some of these problems, but usually not all. For example, numbers five and six, the improper roles for men and women and children, and the placing immorality in a good or indifferent light. And so the, the film remains still unacceptable for that reason. Television programming is sinful entertainment for these same reasons in about 90% of the cases. Almost everything on television is unacceptable. There, there is some decent programming on television. But even in these cases where the programming is wholesome and decent, the advertisements are normally very, very bad and serious occasions of sin, talking about things that you would only mention to your doctor. Dirty things. And so the only way in which to watch a wholesome show on television would be to shut off the advertisements as soon as they appeared, which would be easily 50% of the programming. It's practically impossible. Then there is rock music and country western music. Many Catholics, traditional Catholics, listen to rock music. How do I know? I hear their phones go off. Rock music is satanic and should not be listened to by any human being. Look on the internet. Look at the covers of their albums. The people that make rock music are evil, bizarre, sick, weird people that hate God, love the devil. Why do you listen to it? It's hell's music. It's from the devil. Why do you listen to it? Why do you put it on your phone? It perverts the soul. And modern country Western music, not the traditional stuff from years ago, but modern country Western music has the problem that it is very frequently sexually explicit. And the words are clearly understood. Whereas in rock music, many times the words are obscure. In country western, the modern country western, the words are very clear and many times very dirty. The only time I ever hear it is in a, a store or a, a restaurant, like the Cracker Barrel. It's the only time I hear it, but it's terrible sometimes when, when, when you hear the, the lyrics of those. So that's something that has to be avoided as well. And these things can be very serious occasions of sin. Then there's Facebook. 
many young persons are on Facebook. In my opinion, it is very imprudent in general for anyone to be on Facebook. But if you are on it, by all means, do not post immodest pictures of yourself as so many do. Have at least that common sense. Now, conclusion. I will never understand why women are so attached to immodest dress. To dress in such a way is to send the message that her only worth is to fulfill the desires of a man. It is so demeaning to a woman. It makes her the slave of men and of the worst kind of men. When a woman dresses modestly, on the other hand, she sends a message that her worth has nothing to do with a man's desire. She sends the message that she wants to protect her virtue of chastity and that she does not want to be the occasion of sin to a man. In so doing, she will attract a very good man, a man who loves virtue and who hates sin. The love that will spring up between a man and a woman in such a case will be solidly grounded upon virtue and will last their whole lives in holy matrimony. Sexual attraction is what we have in common with dogs, but virtue is what we have in common with the holy angels. Figure it out. The impure woman, therefore, will attract the impure man who will use her as he will until his roving eye finds a more pleasant object. There are many pious Catholics, traditional Catholics, who will go to hell for no other reason than sins of impurity. They may say their rosaries. They may come to benediction. They may have many devotions to various saints. But if they do not detach themselves from the modern standards of immorality, they will go to hell despite all of those devotions and rosaries. They will spurn the salutary cautions of the church and mock them even as prudish. like the ones I have given here today. And they will embrace the standards of the world as the norm of their morality. Sins of impurity are the easiest and most frequent path to hell. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.
We hope you are enjoying this episode. We would like to remind you that you are listening to In Veritate on member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Matthew Arthur, presenting sermons by Bishop Sanborn on Christian modesty and succession. And now for the continuation of In Veritate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today is the feast of the dedication of the tremendous church in Rome that is more commonly known as St. John Lateran. It, it is one of the few churches in the world that is permitted to have two names. Uh, the uh, one name is what you see in the Missal today, the, the Church of the Holy Savior. And the other name is St. John Lateran. It is more commonly known as St. John Lateran. And the reason why it is so important is because it is the Pope's cathedral. You see, in every diocese, there is a special day set aside for the celebration of the dedication of the cathedral. And because this is the Pope's cathedral, the whole church celebrates the dedication of this cathedral. We probably associate the Pope more with St. Peter's Basilica but actually that is not his cathedral. The, the papal throne is not in St. Peter's Basilica. It is in the Basilica of St. John Lateran. The reason for this is that Constantine, the emperor, in the early 300s gave to St. Sylvester the Lateran Basilica. A basilica for the Romans was a great government building. And it was in the style of what we call the Roman Basilica. Uh, and it was very much suited for a church. He gave that to him. And the Pope resided in this Lateran Basilica and its, its buildings. They built a baptistry there in which all of the uh, baptisms in Rome were done on Holy Saturday and on Pentecost. It, it is there to this day. And uh, the Pope resided there until, uh, all during the Middle Ages, as, as his residence. Uh, it was only in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance that the Pope took up residence in what we now call the Vatican. Now, now the, um, Constantine also built the uh, Vatican Basilica, not the one that you know now, but the old one, uh, on what was known as the Vatican Hill. And the reason why he did that was because St. Peter had been martyred on the Vatican Hill. And so it rested on the very place that St. Peter was buried. And you can see his tomb to this day right under the main altar of St. Peter's Basilica. The basilica that you know today was built, was begun in the early 1500s by Pope Julius II because the old basilica was falling down the one that Constantine had built in the 4th century. And he also built the, uh, the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. Uh, and that uh, also had to be torn down uh, in the 1820s because of a fire, and the one that you see today was erected during the 19th century. So these are the great churches of the Catholic Church, and the greatest of all of them is St. John Lateran. And it has... Uh, a saying on the front of it. If you go to the front of this basilica, it says on the front, Mater et caput omnium ecclesiarum, which means 
the mother and head of all churches. And the reason is that all churches, in order to be true Catholic churches, must be in union with the throne of Peter. And so all churches are dependent on this great church in Rome, the, the Basilica of the Holy Savior. Now, a number of years ago, I uh, was in New York, and I noticed uh, I was passing by the site of the World Trade Center, and they were preparing the building, which just opened a few days ago. They had torn away all of the what was left of the old World Trade Center. And they, I looked in, and they let you see just a little bit when you pass by those construction sites, and I could not see the bottom of the hole that they had made for this great building that stands there today. And I was impressed by that, how deep the foundations must be for such an enormous building. And by analogy, the Archbasilica of St. Savior, St. John Lateran, is founded upon such a deep foundation as well. And that foundation is the faith of St. Peter the Apostle. Now listen to the dialogue in the Gospel, in St. Matthew's Gospel. He, go, he says to his disciples, our blessed Lord says to his disciples, Whom do men say that the Son of Man is? And it says, they said, meaning the, the apostles and disciples. This is not only the apostles, it's the disciples, which means people who are also following him. They said, some John the Baptist, and others some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says... But whom do you say that I am? He says that in the plural. Whom do you say that I am? St. Peter answers for them. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then our Lord speaks only to him in the singular. It says, and Jesus answering said to him, Blessed art thou, in the singular, Simon Barjona, he calls him by name, because flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. So he's saying to St. Peter, You know this not from human beings, but you know it by revelation, that is, you believe it by faith. Then he says, and I say to thee in the singular that thou art Peter. And in the original text, the, the Greek word you is used. And the only time in classical languages that you say the personal pronoun is when you want to designate a certain person emphatically. So he's saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... And then he says, and, and you are Peter. That's the sense of it in the Greek. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou, you, shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou, you, Simon Peter, shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. That's the sense of it. It is a solemn pronouncement. Solemn. And he said it in front of all the apostles and the disciples. Now, it is eminently clear from this dialogue that the church rests upon the foundation of St. Peter and that St. Peter is, is the foundation because of his faith. Just imagine if St. Peter had come back and said, well, you might be Elias. You might be one of the prophets. Do you think that this solemn conferral of the power of God upon St. Peter, the power of God, would have taken place if St. Peter had not made that solemn act of faith? Of course not. And from this fact, we must conclude two things. That any institution or society of Christians which professes to be the true Church of Christ, such as the Greek Orthodox or the Protestants, is not in fact the true Church of Christ for the unique reason, and there could be others, but this is, the, this is a sufficient reason, for the unique reason that it is detached from the succession of St. Peter. Just as the great building in New York must rest upon that foundation, so any church must rest upon the foundation of St. Peter. If it is dislodged or detached from that foundation, it falls down, it is a phony church. That's the first conclusion. The second is that the profession of the Catholic faith, which means the public adherence to all of its dogmas and the public repudiation of all that the church considers to be heretical, is an absolute condition of papal power. It is impossible to think of a Peter that does not profess the faith. It is impossible to think of the conferral of divine power on a Peter that does not profess the faith. Now the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran embodies these two great principles. Every church building is an image of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is a society. It is an organization, we might say. It is a supernatural society founded by Jesus Christ. And the symbol of that society is the physical church built as, as it is of many stones. And we are, in a sense, the many stones that make up the great edifice. Because this basilica is the cathedral church of the successor of St. Peter, it means that every church in the world 
must be connected to it by obedience, submission, and communion under pain of being detached from the one true church of Jesus Christ, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Because the successor of St. Peter is his successor <clears throat> on the absolute condition that he professed the Catholic faith, that no one, no matter what other qualifications he may have, including a papal election, can lay claim to the power which this cathedral represents unless he publicly professes the Catholic faith and repudiates as heretical what the Catholic Church has condemned as heretical. And this is contained in the papal oath, which has been discarded, of course, by Vatican II. But in the traditional papal oath of office, all of this is contained. And when bishops are consecrated, they are interrogated by the consecrating bishop if they believe in the Catholic faith. And at each question, he must stand up and say, I do believe, I do believe. Because the power of the church rests upon the faith. And it is for this reason, then, that we hold that these Vatican II so-called popes are false popes. The Basilica must be seen as the impregnable fortress of orthodoxy against which the powers of hell shall not prevail. And how do these powers not prevail? By the church's refusal to approve of the apostasy of Vatican II and its refusal to accept it as the Catholic faith. That is how we preserve the gates. We must refuse Vatican II as the Catholic faith. If historically the Catholic Church, that is, those who have remained faithful, those who profess publicly the dogmas of the Catholic Church, and those who reject the heresies, if they refuse the name of legitimate pontiff to these Vatican II popes, the power of whom this basilica represents, then these false popes will go down in history as a series of false usurpers, like the Avignon anti-popes in the middle, late Middle Ages, who historically now appear to be absurd human beings strutting around in Pope costumes. That's all they are, those popes who decided that the Roman election was wrong and we're going to make our own popes in Avignon in France. They, history, history has condemned them as false. And they look so absurd in their white robes. They are like Halloween costumes. They are nothing, those people. And that, and that only because of a question of an election. 
That was not the a question of the faith. Just an election. A bad election. A phony election. They have become absurd people in costumes. These, these people who have defected from the faith must go down in history as absurd people in Pope costumes who roam around the Vatican buildings. That's all they are. And that is what we must attest to. Otherwise, you must say, if you give them the papal primacy, you must say that their religion is the Catholic faith. Because it is impossible that the Catholic Church, by the power of God conferred upon St. Peter, promulgate to the whole world a false religion. It's impossible by the promises of Christ. But if you hand these men the papal primacy, you hand them the whole Catholic faith, the whole Catholic Church, historically you have a defection of the Catholic faith. And that's why it's so important that we take that position and we not concede to them the <coughs> idea or, or the, the primacy that they are actually true representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important. That's why we insist on it so much. It is the only consistent Catholic attitude in this situation. The fact that you're here and not in your parish churches attests to the fact that you know that the religion in your parish churches is a false religion. If you were not convinced down to the marrow of your bones that it was not a false religion, you would not be here. Many of you come from f far away. You would not be here. Actions speak louder than words, and your presence here is a sign of your conviction that Vatican II and its reforms is a false religion. If it is a false religion, you must also then draw the, the conclusion that the people who have promulgated are also promulgated it are also false. You cannot separate the primacy from the faith. Pope Pius IX said, "You cannot separate the church from the pope. They are intimately bound together: faith and pope, church and pope. If you hand them the papacy, you hand them the faith, you hand them the church." and you condemn yourselves. Because if that is the faith, and that is the church, you are at an unauthorized mass that is a defiance of the Roman pontiff at this very moment. And it would all be objectively mortal sin. We cannot act merely on our <coughs> preferences and our likes and dislikes. Oh, I don't like the new mass. I like the old mass. I don't like the English. I like the Latin. That's Protestant. The Catholic acts on obedience to the Roman pontiff. He does not act on his likes and dislikes. That's what the modernists do. And the temptation now is to make the traditional mass just another function of modernism. The traditional Mass was permitted by Ratzinger for those who have sensibilities for traditional things. 
So that means if you like all of this stuff, you can have it. But you must also recognize the clowns and all of the other junk that is going on in the Novus Ordo churches as legitimate Catholicism. And so what they permit is really just a form of modernism. You like this type of worship and others like that type of worship. That is a modernist, false religion. The Catholic Church is one and it is the same thing for everybody. That is its sacred unity that proceeds from its very nature as a society of faith, a supernatural society of faith that is founded by our Lord Jesus Christ and which is assisted by the Holy Ghost. We see from the sacred dialogue between our Lord and St. Peter that there is nothing which would make you a false pope more than to fail to profess the Catholic faith. Nothing would estrange you more from Christ than to fail to profess the Catholic faith. Nothing would make you more phony, more the charlatan, more the false shepherd, or more the wolf than to fail to profess the Catholic faith. <clears throat> And for this reason, we must resist every temptation to respond to the allurements of the Vatican II hierarchy to bring the traditional movement under its wing. For this would be to recognize the heretic as the true successor of St. Peter and would turn the heresy of Vatican II into the true faith. That's why they want you. Because they understand history. If those who have objected to Vatican II eventually cave in to the modernist system, then Vatican II has the stamp of approval from tradition. They very much want that. They understand that. They think in the terms of hundreds of years. It would make such a thing, would be to make this venerable basilica that we celebrate today in the Mass a house of heresy. A, a house of heresy in which the gates of hell have been victorious. If we grant them legitimacy, if we grant them primacy, then it's a house of heresy in which the gates of hell have been victorious. We must as well reject the notion that the non-papacy of these usurpers is a mere opinion, as many say, implying that it may well be true that they are authentic popes, when you make an opinion, if you say it is my opinion that they are not the popes, you are automatically saying that you have a certain fear of error in what you're saying and that it is possible that the, that the opposite opinion also be true and that it is legitimate to hold the opposite opinion because there is not sufficient certitude to say this is absolutely true. That is absolutely false. 
because I have shown you that your refusal of the primacy to them is bound up with the faith. It is not some theological opinion about how many wings angels have. This is something bound up with the Catholic faith. And that if you give them the primacy, you must admit the failure of the Catholic Church, the defection of the Catholic Church, and the victory of the devil over the Catholic Church. That is no matter of opinion. Our resistance to Vatican II is not based on a mere opinion, but upon the rock of faith, the same rock of faith upon which the great basilica is built. We don't oppose popes on a, because we have an opinion. We don't set up an apostolate all over the world in opposition to what the Pope says because we have an opinion. That's Protestant. It's because we have the faith that we do this. And so we must be consistent and say that this is the only consistently Catholic position and the only thing that says to those people who claim to be true popes that they are false and that they are nothing else but absurd human beings in pope costumes. And it is for this same reason that we steadfastly refuse to actively participate in the unicum mass, that is the mass in which Bergoglio is mentioned as true pope, for to do so is to admit explicitly that the Vatican II Pope is a true Catholic Pope and therefore that he professes the Catholic faith and that his religion, which he has promulgated, is the Catholic faith. If it is the Catholic faith, we should all be with it. We should be there. This is wrong if that is the Catholic faith. So don't you see the lie that you are telling to God on the altar when you say that? The lie? Do you think that's pleasing to God? That that awful name be pronounced in the sacred canon of the Mass and the recognition of Him? And don't say, well, that's the priest's business, I can do something else. Any more than you can say when you get on an airplane well, it's the pilot's business where we're going. It's, it doesn't you know, affect me. You're going where he's going. And the priest at the altar offers your mass. So you're in communion with Bergoglio if he is. And that is not pleasing to God. Bergoglio, who has promulgated to us fornication, adultery, and sodomy. What more needs to be said that this, this is not Catholic? Fornication, adultery, and sodomy. It's filthy, dirty. It's false. It's a false religion. Do we need anything else? And he should be in our mass. It would be like a big pile of manure sitting on the altar. Is that pleasing to God in the sacred sacrifice? In the very center of the holy mass? To admit that the Vatican II is the true faith by the mention of this evil name 
would bring down upon yourself this conclusion that you are cut off from the successor of St. Peter because you profess a false faith. Every church is a testimony to the faith and devotion of the people who built it. Generations before us built the great basilica of St. John Lateran. Our only task is to keep it Catholic by refusing to recognize as Catholic popes the usurpers who are occupying it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us on In Veritate. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that In Veritate is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, rosary or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray for the restoration i am matthew arthur may god bless you this program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of novus ordo watch See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.